0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, Uh, Cinemaniacs, as James likes to call you. This is Devin. I've got James here. We're here for another episode of Den of Sin. And it's a very special episode of Den of Sin. Uh, You know, I think we're all feeling a little uh, light on Halloween this year due to the pandemic. And I'm happy to say that here at the Den of Sin, we've actually got a (laughs) trick-or-treater. An old friend of ours. James, would you like to introduce our old buddy?
1: Not really. <laughs> sure, I'll take it. Uh, hey, guys. We've got with us today uh, Mr. Casey O'Connor. Casey, introduce yourself.
2: Hello, everyone. Glad to be here.
1: How you doing today, Casey?
2: I'm good, man. Just recovering from the weekend, trying to psych myself up for work tomorrow. <laughs> you know how it goes. Through.
1: I feel that. I know Devin feels that. You know, to our listeners, a few episodes ago, this was, and it was not planned, I promise you, a few episodes ago, I sort of made a, a off-the-cuff sort of unpaid promotion for Voltage VHS, which is a, a company that makes these really cool uh, actual, converts actual VHS cassettes into lamps. Uh then late today, we have uh, one of the owners of that company with us today, Casey. Uh, so Casey is the uh, co-owner, right? Am I saying that? Is that yeah, me and,
2: uh, me and our friend Shane Merrill, who we went to high school with, he's more the technological genius behind the whole thing. And I've kind of just hopped in because I saw the potential in it and helping out the company in other ways. But uh, Shane is definitely like the master builder of the actual lamps.
1: Yeah, it was his idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you decide to uh, get on there, just like your father, kind of uh, <laughs> use your salesman skills and yeah, uh, basically,
2: help. you know, it was like I went to film school. I work in film and TV, you know, t- t- taking classes on visual design and all that. So basically, um, I'm mostly part of the mostly the voice of the business, and I also have a lot of input on like the actual like lighting and sound concepts that we do for the lamps. That's cool. That kind of thing. So.
1: Well, uh, as a, I'm a proud owner of two, uh, I should also uh, say I did get them for free. So I didn't actually pay for these. Uh, well,
2: you did. I have to say you did our amazing logo, which that's right. Was, that's true. It was a home run, man. That thing looks awesome.
1: I appreciate that. So, but they're awesome. so we, I felt like just, I said the other time, I, I just, I just reinstalled it because I'd cleaned my studio and I was literally next to me and I was like, I should give a little shout out for this. But anyways, enough for for promotion. Uh, today, wait, wait,
0: one moment, one moment. Did we say where they could find these lamps? Oh no, yeah.
1: <laughs> That's probably
0: important. <laughs> um, what's the point? Let us know where we can find the lamps and uh, yeah, sure. check <laughs> check out the good, so to speak, because these things are really cool. They're uh, they definitely have a, a forward-facing technology element and and all nostalgia behind it. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah,
2: so first and foremost, uh, we have our website, which is voltagevhs.com. Uh I say the best thing to visit, I mean the website's obviously good, especially if you want to buy something. Um, but To see, like, the best, like, videos and kind of see, like, what we can do and kind of example of how tricked out we can get these. I say hit our Instagram, which is uh, at voltagevhslamps. So we got videos and we got still photos on there and stuff that we do. We do all kinds of uh, matching sound and light concepts, depending on the movie. You know, it's all custom to basically how anybody wants it. So we could do a lot of stuff with them. So.
1: so rad.
0: Very cool. Now, Casey, you already kind of uh, gave us a little bit of, of your film background with your education and everything, but... The viewers, or the listeners, I'm still always stumbling all over that, Uh, (laughs) the listeners would probably enjoy knowing that we've all known each other since high school. You guys were a couple years ahead of me, so I really only knew you on the way out of high school, but you guys have known each other since, like, junior high, and we've been, you know, thick as thieves ever since, even though we all live in different towns and one of us lives in a different state, although I've seen so many of my favorite movies at your house. Uh, (laughs) I've seen at at your current house and, you know, at your parents' house. I I know, calling back to the last podcast about Willem Dafoe, I know for a fact the first time I ever saw Streets of Fire was at your house.
2: Yeah, I'm a big proponent of Streets of Fire, (laughs) as Jim is too. Like, to the point where I've probably, I've, in fact, I know that I've made people mad. Like, like
1: as <laughs> hey, if well, you're not making it? people friends hey, well, mad. I,
2: I throw on streets of fire, and they're like, "What in the fuck are you doing?"
1: <laughs> That's 50 of my life is just annoying people with the films I want like, them to watch. Yeah, it was funny though because I was I was saying somebody recently that uh, you know so many of my most vital film memories are directly tied with YouTube two. I saw them with one of you two, or sometimes with both of you two. Uh, So you know that was a great time. I first off, I think we 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 are the generation first off where we were raised in the greatest period for pop culture. Anyways, the yeah, absolutely late seventies and throughout the eighties and early nineties, and then we we were in our twenties and in our formative years, we we saw sort of the birth of like modern film nerd culture. So, and then the on of like, you know, conventions and all sorts of things. But uh, yeah, so I, f- I feel like this is a long time coming. I feel like we definitely, uh, this is a road we've all been headed down anyway. So let's do it. Let's get into it. Let's start talking about some movies. I'm excited. <laughs> all
0: right. Yeah. yeah now, that, let's do it. <laughs> now that we've got the candy corn out of the way, now we can get to the actual candy bars at the there bottom of the bag here. And we have a great topic for this particular holiday today. This is something that we all I think saw as inevitable as a topic coming up, and this yeah. is actually a person whose name has probably come up in almost every episode we've done so far. Probably, uh, pretty close. I, I actually think Paul Schrader might hold the uh, record for the person who's been mentioned the most, but yet that we have not done a show about. Uh, but we, he's
1: coming though. He, he is definitely coming.
0: He is. Uh, but today we're going to talk about John Carpenter, of course. Now we all have our own personal histories with John Carpenter. I, I just to throw this out there because it was a fun recent memory. In fact, I think it was the last time Casey and I were even in the same building uh, before all this uh, mess hit the world. Uh, but we actually went and saw uh, Tom Atkins at the Egyptian Theater. Yeah, Beyond Fest. Yes, for a triple feature of. Let's see, it was Night of the Creeps, Halloween Three, and John Carpenter's The Fog. That's you a know? good. Uh, yeah, man, film that
2: fest. was a, that was a fun day.
0: Let's let's go ahead and just get into the fog. Then let's let's uh, screw going linear since we've already talked about a lot of these. Uh, <laughs> any, any thoughts on the fog, guys? Uh, or, or Casey, any anything you want to tell us about seeing Atkins? Because it was a pretty good time.
2: Well, as far as the Atkins event go, that day was great. Like I kind of only recently, probably in the past five years, like kind of seen everything that seen all the films that like Atkins has kind of been championed for, like Night of the Creeps um the fog i actually was late to the game on i barely saw that for the first time a couple years ago as well uh, while i was on a carpenter kick of trying to like see basically all of his stuff and um and now i own a huge frame poster of the fog (laughs) (laughs) so um it's not my absolute favorite of his but it's definitely amazing and it's definitely fun to watch yeah, we can elaborate more <laughs> if you guys got more to say.
0: <laughs> oh, it's one that for me tends to just grow better every time I saw it. When I was younger and seeing it, I, I there's never been a time where I haven't enjoyed it. Uh, but I don't think that I was fully linked into it. You know, I, when I was younger I wanted more like the thing. I still want more of the thing, but <laughs> we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. But the fog is really a fantastic movie, and it's his contribution to ghost stories. Yep. And and yep. Carpenter has Absolutely. actually pointed out that this was his version of an EC comic, which
1: I can definitely see that. Totally understandable. Yeah,
0: yeah. Once you know that, like I, I actually kind of wish that there was like a, an accompanying EC comic uh, graphic novel sort of thing to accompany the fog. I, somebody ought to get on that.
2: Oh, it's probably coming. I mean, he has his own comic label, so who
0: knows? <laughs> he does, he does. Uh, he almost Storm King Comics. Too. Yes, and he almost turned it into a uh, television show as well. It was going to be about uh, a different, I don't know if it was a different town or whether it was the Fog visiting a different person within the town or what, but each episode was going to be a, a how- different person's story concerning the Fog, and by the end of the season, they were how all going to together. Mo-
2: how soon after the movie was that planned, or developed
1: i'm
0: not sure the dates my guess on it would be probably sometime in the 90s my guess is that it was probably a either a syndicated sort of thing like tales from the dark side or like a cable thing like uh, carpenter's own body bags it was right, definitely right. prior to any kind of streaming so
2: that would have been interesting
0: yeah that would have been really cool and it, it, this just dawned on me too how many people that were in the fog the very next year were in george romero's ec comics
1: tribute that's right show? yes I was going to say.
0: Adrian Barbeau, Very large
1: uh, uh, Hal Holbrook, Holbrook and, yep. and
0: Atkins. Tom Atkins was yep. in
1: both. Yep, yeah. that's correct. So. All legendary. I think The Fog is sort of quintessential John Carpenter. Obviously, it's not, it's not as iconic as, say, like The Thing or Halloween, but I think it's like it says everything he's good at. Um, you're going to hear me say this a lot, but the score is fantastic. Um, in fact, I actually will hold it as probably the penultimate, John Carpenter's score, which I know maybe some people would find shocking. I will definitely get into my favorite in a while, but um, I think it's great. I think it's, I actually chose it for uh, me and some work friends. We do this thing where we choose like one specific genre of subgenre of horror movies. And for my ghost movie this year, I chose the fog because I think it is, first of all, it's a vastly underappreciated ghost movie. The designs of the pirate ghosts are incredible, the way that they film them. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of Carpenter – it's probably Carpenter's best-looking movie at by that point. Like, the movie just looks amazing. The, the way that he used um, that town, that coastal town, was perfect. Um, also, Hal Holbrook in this is amazing. Like, he's – and his ending is so rewarding, but, like, it's – it's, I think it's fantastic. I, it's one of the John Carpenter films that I feel is more – reward. I get more reward out of it each time I view it. Like every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, man, I, I think I appreciate that a little bit more than even I already did. So, um, yeah, it's not – I wouldn't say it's his best movie, but it's definitely quintessential vintage John Carpenter, and I do think it's in that top. 10.
2: I definitely think it's more rewarding upon multiple viewings because, like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't one I grew up with. It's one I basically saw the first time maybe a couple years ago, and I think, honestly, I've only seen it like twice. But even in the second time, I, I grew more appreciation of it. not that I didn't like it to begin with, but it's like you just you know you see more about it and you like pick up on more creative choices and the look of it and the set and like you said the music and everything it you know once you've gone through the initial run through of it, you see it more times it, it it definitely resonates more and you see like kind of what is so great about it
1: yeah and he you know he obviously he had sort of his quintessential cast in there with uh, adrian barbeau and uh jamie lee Curtis and janet lee so uh you know his ex-wife was in the movie but um <laughs> yeah it's definitely a thing where i will say I, as somebody who gets who feels it's my responsibility sometimes to defend the remake that remakes aren't inherently bad it's what you do with them it's just like anything it's like you know do you have a vision for your remake what are you you know like what are you trying to do with it it's all about you know execution but i will say that the fog remake is one of the most despicable fucking movies i've ever seen in every manner and god damn dude like it just makes I, I me appreciate the
2: more that much more i haven't even bothered watching it i don't oh. know if, i don't know if i could bring myself to do it
1: there was a time when i was really hoping that smallville kid uh, um was tom welling tom welling was gonna do something but that was my bad so <laughs>
0: <laughs> well let's just to to kind of get it out of the way let's maybe briefly go over or the tv career work of john carpenter yeah. uh with uh let's do it Elvis and uh, somebody's wa- somebody watching me.
2: I just watched somebody's watching me today for the very first time, and for. For a 1978 TV like movie of the week, it's pretty damn good.
1: Yeah, dude. First off, any movie with Lauren Hutton and Adrian Barbeau, I'm going to watch that movie. Yeah, uh,
3: absolutely.
1: <laughs> but uh, I haven't – I'm the inverse. I have seen it once, and I haven't seen it in probably five or six years is when it got its first Blu-ray or DVD release or whatever. Maybe it's even been longer than maybe almost 10 years. But, um, yeah, I just – I do remember, like, obviously I would seen Halloween first, and there was a few scenes in that where I'm like, oh, I see where you got that show for Halloween, um, but you know it's it's, a, it's definitely a Hitchcockian. You know, it's not it's not amazing. It's it's just. I mean. It is exactly what it looks like—a very Hitchcock-inspired sort of thriller. It's yeah. good. Every the cast is great. The you know he always does really interesting things with his female characters, and uh, yeah, I mean it's it's serviceable. Like it's it's good. It just you know, I don't know if it's super memorable, but it's very I, serviceable for what it is.
0: I don't but, know if I don't know if serviceable for what it is is a positive review. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean, I definitely think if you're a fan of Carpenter and want to see all his work, like I don't think you'd be disappointed watching it.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah.
2: But it's definitely interesting to see. Like, uh, there's a uh, small documentary with Carpenter on the disc for it that Shout Factory put out that I watched afterwards, and he talks about how busy he was and how much he learned in 1978 because mm-hmm. it was like, I mean, two weeks after he was done with "Someone's Watching Me," he went on to do Halloween. Halloween, yep. I forget what the third thing he did that year was. I can't remember. Maybe it was another TV project or something.
1: He was but, making
0: um, Elvis was released in. It 79, was, Elvis. But it was yeah, Elvis. He was making Elvis in seventy eight. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, but if I'm correct, me if I'm mistaken. Or, yeah, if I'm mistaken, but uh, someone's watching me. Was supposed to be a theatrical release. It wasn't actually originally intended to be a TV movie, right? It was. It was written to be a theatrical release. Uh, I, I don't know the backstory as
0: to how it eventually became a TV release, but it From, was theatrical overseas
2: from what i saw in that documentary today is basically yeah he had written it years ago but i think it was like his agent or somebody that when they were shopping around they're like there's it's like it's fine but there's not enough to it to be like a theatrical release so why don't we try it for tv and i think that's how that came about
1: interesting i will say we, we don't need to get into the eyes of Laura mars or you know like we said before we started filming all of the things he's written but there is definitely a weird if you've seen both there is definitely a weird uh vibe that they both have like right. you can tell they came from the same dude or around the same time it's yeah, like
2: and, and he even says um and again this documentary was wasn't bad that, you know, he took a lot of, because uh, someone's watching me was like the first union thing he ever did. And so he saw like how fast like the TV guys worked, you know, which was something that was completely, you know, different from his just kind of like running and gunning shit on like, yeah, salt on precinct 13 at dark star, you know, so, um, so he's like, I learned a lot from those guys, because, you know, I definitely incorporated a lot of that in the Halloween which I started shooting right after, you know, he's like, I learned a lot of just basic directing tenets on somebody's watching me because, you know, I was working with such like pro people <laughs> for the first time that, you know, I can like, imagine. He's like, yeah, there's definitely a lot of like shots and stuff that like, you know, we tried in the TV movie that I definitely brought on to Halloween.
3: Yeah.
1: Because yeah. me. we first thought watching it was like, hmm.
2: yeah, <laughs> like, e- e- even like the Panaflex and stuff. Like, yeah. you know, there's a couple of paniflex shots and someone's watching me and you're like, Oh, okay.
0: You know what? What would be interesting for uh, someone's watching me if uh, Carpenter would write a score for it? I think it looks like a Carpenter film. It feels like a Carpenter film, but then the music is very TV movie of the week. Yeah, and he says that.
2: Yeah, that was the first time he did that. He's like, "Cause yeah, I was used to like scoring all my stuff, so it was the first time of you know actually going to like a session and like telling a, a scorer like, okay, this is where I want music here, this is where I want music here, and that kind of thing." He's like, "So that was the first time." that i did that so that was kind of interesting to hear too
0: yeah but i I think it would feel more like a john carpenter with that kind of a score absolutely Uh, obviously you know 2020 hindsight nobody in 1978 was thinking let's let this uh record the score (laughs) for this i don't even know what network it was but no network was going to allow that to happen although speaking of music just to speak briefly of elvis uh everybody knows elvis's story uh, there's another Elvis movie coming out next year, supposedly, if if there is a next year next year. <laughs> and this was the first big Elvis movie. It was actually authorized, and uh, Elvis's father was consulted on it. And it's it's pretty authentic. They they you know, combine some things for contextual purpose, all of that. Uh, the some of the clothes that Elvis is wearing in the movie are actually Elvis's clothes. That's kind of cool. That's and it cool. was it was uh, produced only a year actually it was probably produced only months after Elvis had passed away so this thing was practically rushed into production on on that level but it's mostly notable because it's the first time that John Carpenter ever worked with Kurt Russell who played Elvis of course and uh, this was going to end up being kind of what shaped the rest of
1: Carpenter and Russell's career Uh, did you guys see Elvis? I still remember my mom was a fan of the Elvis TV movie and she would talk about it, but a three hour biopic of Elvis. Uh, I, I mean, I've, if it's been available, like as far as like to own, I it's now, I've never come across it, but uh, I. Shout factory, of course. has it. Of course. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, I, I haven't. If I saw it when I was a kid, I was too young to remember. I just know I've seen the clips, different clips over the years of, you know, Kurt Russell being Elvis, but I haven't seen it. Uh, the whole three hours now
2: so i i think there's only three carpenter films i still have not seen elvis is one of them uh the other two being dark star and the ward so it's like the 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 beginning the end and then elvis
0: (laughs) i I, I still i
2: still need to experience so um
0: not to give too much of a spoiler alert but if you're gonna miss three that's probably the three
1: Yeah, for real. <laughs> Probably what I figured, so. Yeah. Uh, but, in fact, yeah. I, I wish I had missed the ward. <laughs> Anyways, let's get on to it. But those are, before we move on, though, Devin, I don't know if you wanted to touch upon them, but if you're talking about his TV work, uh, I do have to say his two episodes for Masters of Horror are two of the best in the series. Pro-Life is interesting. I don't know if I like it. I mean, it's an interesting concept, and... It definitely comes across very cheesy. I think more cheesy than maybe. But again, they're low budget working with a low budget television. But Cigarette Burns is really good. I think it's actually probably in the top three best uh, Masters of Horror episodes. And it's like a really, I, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, man, I would have liked to have seen this like expanded like, in a, into an actual feature. I, I actually thought, with more money, and you know, like it could have been a really interesting story. But yeah, I feel like you know, and masses of horror very, very hit or miss overall. You know, some decent directors turned in some pretty shitty movies, and um, I forget who did the George Went one, the family. That one was really good. Oh, that was uh, that was John Landis. Anyways, I just talked about that. I feel like it had to be mentioned because they're, they're actually pretty solid. They're, they're pretty solid little, whatever you want to call them, mini-movies. I don't know yeah, what you want to call yeah, them. Yeah, I, I like Cigarette. Cigarette
2: burns was actually written by uh, Ain't It Cool News writer. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. I, I don't think he works for the site anymore, but um, yeah, he was working there when that happened. So is that
1: is that site still around?
2: I think. <laughs> I, I haven't been to know. that website for all the like, movie news years. sites
1: I go to, that's not one I still go to. No, not in no. years. Yeah. But
0: Wasn't Harry Knowles kind of called out or something?
1: Uh, I remember that, yeah, something like that. Part of the Me Too shit, yeah.
2: Possibly, I—I I mean, no offense to any of the fans of the site, but I've never been a big Harry Knowles. Fan, no, <laughs> honestly, I, so I, I
3: do
0: think I met him once, of, and
2: I was not impressed.
0: I—I <laughs> don't have any personal experience with him, but uh, and I can kind of respect what he did, but I do think that he was kind of the beginning of the more outspoken nerds who I oftentimes. Uh, considering I consider myself a near a nerd I'm, I'm a movie geek but there are some yeah. movie geeks that I just want to tell to shut the fuck up and sit down and I yeah. think Harry right. Knowles uh kind of helped that movement uh come to more of a fruition and, and gave a voice to a bunch of people who probably should just be giving the voice to their basement wall yeah it's That's basically right.
2: it's basically like going to an LA film Q&A but on like a website because like one of my <laughs> biggest pet peeves like living in LA is go is anytime there's like a and a like unless it's like curated and it's like by someone that like knows what they're talking about and is, like asking pertinent questions, like I'm fine with it. But as soon as I go, let's take some questions to the audience, I I will make a fucking flash dash right out the <laughs> because yes, I dude. can't <laughs> take it. It's fucking it's painful, man. Like it
1: can get bad. I feel I will say this about Harry Knowles though. That dude has nobody has ever benefited from looking like a fucking real life caricature of a nerd than that dude with his 700 pound red afro like he just when you look at him like the only thing you can do is either shoot yourself in the face or become an internet nerd celebrity those are your only two options in life somehow he eked out that second one uh, against all odds but yeah just f that dude and f that website and f that every well, I can say everybody who's ever involved on that website because the, the guy who worked there, it wrote a pretty interesting little movie. So <laughs> I take back that last point, but not the first two.
0: And you know who, who did, uh, just to kind of straighten the train here, uh, <laughs> who, who did the uh, music for the John Carpenter
1: Masters of Horror, right? His son?
0: Yeah, Cody Carpenter. It was his his beginning as a
1: music composer for for film. Oh, okay. So yep. they, that's what they've been. They, that's all the he, Carpenter does now is just plays music with his son. So
2: and play video games and <laughs> play video games. Yeah,
1: uh, suck whatever. Who's the guy that came up with like a uh, Silent Hill and all those games? I forget his name. I'm not a video game guy particularly, yeah, but but I always hear that guy's name, but I know John Carpenter just wants to suck that music or like I used to. And I guess, I guess that dude then said some shit about John Carpenter or about movies and then John Carpenter. And I don't know. I don't let's, let's not go down that road, but real quick while we're speaking about his music, though, I will say one of the biggest letdowns in my life was uh the, like the year I was moving out here to Texas, uh, all my friends went to go see John Carpenter fucking live plays music live. And I've never had more fucking FOMO in my life. Like seeing those social media posts, I was so fucking depressed. Yeah, uh,
2: great, man. That was a fun ass concert.
1: I bet. I know. You know. Casey, you invited me to go with you and I can't
0: even remember why I couldn't. I think I had to work.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely recommend seeing Carpenter Live if you can. It's really fun. You know, they have the according, like, you know, movie footage playing footage. behind them with each song and whatnot. All the, like, original, like, Lost Soul stuff is great live. You know, it, it's it's a fun time. And he's, You know, he's not very, like, talkative. He's just kind of like this old man going, all right, let's go. Yeah, you know, like, does his thing and, uh, you know, we'll throw up, like, the devil horns every now and then just to, like, get into the spirit of stuff. And then, like, the music pre- the music and the, you know, company visuals just pretty much speak for itself. And then you're done and you're like, wow, that was fantastic. <laughs> it's, like, the most non-bullshit, like, show you could go to. Like,
1: I always imagine, like, he should do one concert and then, like, for, like, the second to last song have, what was the name of his that band, the Cadillacs? Oh, uh, the Coupe de Villes. The Coupe de Villes, have the Coupe de Villes come out and... Play that terrible fucking song. Every
2: everybody will lost their shit if the Coupe de Villes like reunited on stage, trust me, because everyone there was just like total carpenter fan (laughs) nerd
1: nerd bonering Um, all right let's get back let's get let's let's get back on track (laughs) i take partial blame for that sorry no no it's (laughs) important
0: it's important to talk about his music because his music is such a big part of who he is as an artist and it does incorporate into the films and let's be
1: honest probably one of the most influential aspects of him as a creator as an artist has been the music probably the most ripped off in fact it's it's it has spawned an entire subgenre of mu- music. Now there are people who basically rip off John Carpenter as their musical careers, and I don't mean for film. I just mean as bands. I'm looking at you, Magic Sword and <laughs> Perturbator. And anyways, let's not. Well, the th- the thing I think is great about like his
2: you know music career is that you know he basically just did it because he couldn't afford yep. anybody else to do it, and so you know he's just like, well, shit. I'll, I guess I'll do it. And no matter, like, how minimal, you know, it may seem to, like, what actually composes the music, the sound and, like, you know, yep. you know the memories it triggers when you're watching his films, like, when you hear a specific cue and stuff, it's, like, it's just amazing, you know? It's,
1: I have a very – you will uh, hopefully be the right people to share this memory with, but the, I still remember being in, I think, seventh grade at the uh, Moore Junior High School Halloween dance. uh was it maybe it was ninth grade it might have been eighth or ninth grade either way we were, we were sitting outside and you know they're playing music before you could go in people were hanging outside but i remember sitting outside and all of a sudden they started playing you know the halloween theme and literally getting chills being like as soon as those those chords hit like being like Ooh, I actually feel a little freaked out and spooked out. And, you know, just hang out in, you know, in front of a fucking junior high school auditorium waiting for the doorstep. And that's the power of like what he did in the fact that it's so affecting and so haunting and so precise. And it's, well, yeah, and, and, and he did that over and over and over again through movies. And again, very similar sounds, but every time master at using a goddamn uh, synthesizer to freak people out. So, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, since we're going with the music, let's
0: uh, just, because I don't know exactly where it will fit in anywhere else here. The first film that he scored for himself was Assault on Precinct 13, which anyone doesn't know this film by now, you were severely missing out. It's not a horror film. It's nope. not a Halloween film. Uh, it definitely has some creepy vibes to it, though. Uh, yeah. It's, Tense. It's a, yeah. And it, you can get, clearly see Carpenter's western inspiration yep. in this, uh, because it's got elements of Rio Bravo, El Dorado, all that sort of thing. And it's actually something that carried on through other films that he made as well, uh, including some of the stuff he's made this century. Still has the stamp of Assault on Precinct Thirteen on
1: it. Yes, yeah, I can think of one particularly that I, I can't wait to talk about.
2: I was going to say definitely, I think Escape from New York. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> A I will. I will say that. Uh, yeah, it's I, I I love that movie. In fact, Devin, I saw it in your living room. Well, at the time, it was your living room? Yeah, it's a it's it's genius. I think it's probably his most unheralded movie. Like as far as how great it is and how influential it was. It's a very tense, tight. Like I said, I mean, it's it's like a Forty Seventh Street version of a western. Um, definitely like a very urban film but definitely has the spirit of a Western and it's great. And I will even say, I don't hate the remake while we're talking about remakes of Carpenter's works. It's one I don't hate. I don't, it doesn't hold up to the original, but it's a pretty serviceable film and actually speaks volumes of how great just the concept is because of, you know, and that was one thing Carpenter did really well was forcing scenarios where two different, different kinds of people wouldn't normally have to fight, you know, with each other um, and, and, and sort of partner up. And that was a, you know, a very, it's a very interesting plot. Very, I'm with you. If you've had never seen it,
2: yeah, watch. I couldn't agree more. It's, um, I mean, I don't really know how much more to elaborate on it, but uh, it, it's definitely worthy of viewing. Um, like I said, especially if you're a Carpenter fan, because it is unlike a lot of stuff that he's done, you will see stuff in it that, you know, you might see in later films. It's like, Oh, he's kind of doing this again. But I mean, as a whole, it's, there's nothing else in his, in his filmography that's like it. And it's really enjoyable.
0: It is. And it's uh it's a movie where you can already tell that he's starting to lay the groundwork for not really being able to determine who the good guy and who the bad guy is in his films uh, based on the stereotypical, typical sort of tropes that he puts out there the yeah. uh the convict in this movie i can't remember his name right now darwin uh, i think is the name of the actor but um the scene where he gets thrown the shotgun to like help out with the siege on the yep. <laughs> it's still one of my favorite moments and <laughs> uh, i did want to point out because i found this interesting this movie almost got an x rating and oh really yes, yeah i didn't know that uh, this was, for anyone that doesn't know their lineage with the MPAA, this was prior to the NC-17 and prior to PG-13. So oftentimes there were huge uh, reaches between a PG and an, and an R and an R and an X. But in this film, there was one scene, just one scene that got it an X rating. And it's still in the movie because they tricked the MPAA by taking the scene out, showing it to the MPAA for their appeal, <laughs> and then returning it to the Prince of the Movies before it came out of the theaters. <laughs> Does anyone want to hazard to guess what, the, what scene was cut to, quote-unquote, cut to save the R rating?
2: I personally don't know. Um, it's been a while since I've seen Assault on Precinct 13, but I can't wait to find out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> James, any guesses? And the character, by the way, uh, the character's name is uh, Wells.
0: Okay, Wells. Okay, uh, we'll get back to Wells in just a moment then.
1: Uh... What were we saying? What scene? I have no idea.
0: You, you guys are going to kick yourselves because you're not going to be surprised once I say what it is. Little girl gets shot eating an ice cream cone. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh. <laughs> oh, in fact, yeah, that's I yeah. remember. <laughs> Which is still a shocking Makes scene. sense. It's, it's really the it's, first thing that I remember when I think about that movie, actually, is how intense that scene is. You don't see it coming. Uh, it's not a spoiler alert. It's more of a plot point that carries the story forward rather than any kind of an ending. But yeah, this this poor little girl who... Is the same girl that escaped Witch Mountain, and and yeah. I think I think she's one of the uh, Real Housewives. But yeah, little oh Kim uh, Richards. Yes, as a little girl, she uh, got what was it shot in the chest while buying an ice cream cone. Assault on Precinct Thirteen, uh, and that was a pretty good indicator you weren't going to be able to trust this filmmaker. He was going to do things that nobody else was doing. Uh, and to get back to Wells real quick, uh, the Convict in this movie who ends up having to become the hero uh, to help out the the main police officer. Uh, he was, in my opinion, the birth of the John Carpenter badass action hero which yes almost he used it so many times that it's become a signature of his so let's go ahead and springboard right into his next big and perhaps biggest badass action hero snake plissken in escape from new york james you got any thoughts on escape from new york
1: um yeah it's just one of the most important movies ever made uh, i mean <laughs> uh you know the thing Citizen is, and
2: Kane escaped exactly. from New York.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, I mean, I, I I say that only slightly jesting, but if you think about how, first off, it sort of helped kick off the whole post-apocalyptic. It was one of the films that sort of helped kick off the whole post-apocalyptic. It really launched, uh, you know, the the action era. I think at this point uh, in his career, most people still associate Kurt Russell with his Disney movies. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's again everything about it it works it's a it's a classic for a reason it's one of the best first off just let's talk about snake Plissken. he is the quintessential anti-hero you know like he's as cool as it comes everything like about him comes like all the design stuff of the character with the tattoo and the eye patch and the you know the leather and like all of his lines of dialogue he just seems like he you know it's just it doesn't i mean he, it's it he, it's iconic for a reason um yeah, man. It's what, do you, what you need to say. I mean, the w- one thing I will say is that uh, I don't think it's, it's not my favorite Kurt Russell uh, John Carpenter collaboration, but it's, I mean, it's definitely close, but uh, yeah. It's fun. Dude, it's it's
2: yeah. like the look of it, the concept, I mean, there's just so much good things happening in the movie that, you know, it's definitely a staple of his filmography, if not like, you know, I'm sure it's someone's favorite, but, you know, not not necessarily mine, but I mean, I'll i mean shit i'll watch escape from new york anytime it's on without question so i mean but yeah i think um what you're saying about the anti-hero is like there's it's definitely kickstart like that type of uh attitude for certain like you know characters that came in movies after like i definitely think probably Ash from evil dead 2 probably wouldn't exist at that yeah like, that. without snake plissken you know the, fir- the first evil Dead he wasn't so like machismo but he definitely was in the yeah. second one
1: yes well, the thing is, too, I mean, really, you could tell Kurt Russell, you know, he was definitely like channeling John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and different things, like even down to like the way that like, he was sort of acting through his gritted teeth thing. But there was a lot um, of Eastwood in there, especially,
0: I mean, they even had Lee Van Cleef playing opposite him. Uh, that's right. He
1: yeah, totally. World. So that was an overt
3: reference, almost. But
1: he, yeah, he, he. you know, it helped cement him to be a bigger star. And I mean, it's one of the, yeah, it's just one of the most, like, it's seminal carpenter and i think it's just seminal of the genre like you know it's again it's iconic for a reason and again snake plissken he, just, just snake plissken as a character has become iconic unfortunately as yes, we will get into not not used uh, as uh entertain well not as used as uh well we'll get into it let's i don't want to let we'll get into it but i also
2: want to say that it's probably like the ending of any carpenter movie that like entertains me <laughs> The most. Yeah. The, the, every time I see it, I just like start laughing hysterically. There's, <laughs> there's so some personal.
0: big applause lines. Uh, yeah, it's, towards the end there.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a must see as far as Carpenter goes. It's great.
0: <laughs> uh, what was uh, Isaac Hayes' name in that? He was. Uh, He's the Duke, a number one. The Duke. Yeah. Yeah, the, you're the Duke, a <laughs> number one. Uh, <laughs> I just think uh, any movie that's got Isaac Hayes riding around in a pimped out Cadillac with chandeliers for headlights. Yeah, it's, in a post-apocalyptic like just, New York. It's, it's a good thing. Fucking brilliant. Uh,
1: I mean, while we're talking about you, you let's. I mean, do you want to talk about Escape from LA right now? There's probably no better. Because t- <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. This is what I was going to say, anyways. This is my. I've seen it twice. Once in the theater when it came out, and then once like five years later trying to think. I'm like, there's no way I hated that movie. I must've just, you know, it, maybe it's, it's a victim of uh, too high expectations. Nope. I hated it as much the second time, uh, despite some pretty in- interesting or entertaining sequences that are super stupid. Uh, yeah. I hated it. And I, I, people like have become to defend the movie to each their own, I guess, but not. Nah, well,
2: let me say that you've seen it one more time than I have. Cause I've still <laughs> only seen it since when it was initially released. I remember thinking like there was cool ideas within yes. it but I thought it was just like way more slick and way more like CGI heavy than like I wanted it to be like I still wanted yes. kind of like the grittiness of the original Yes in it yeah. and it was just it was so much more of a Hollywood film that it was it was just so apparent and But
1: not only was it not only was it too slick it was also the, the despite a bigger budget or I don't maybe it didn't have a bigger budget but it was definitely they were trying to use the tools of the time the tools of the time weren't up to what the job needed and they, the yeah. effects look terrible. That the, green screen work and that shit is so
0: bad. The but, effects yeah. house that worked on that movie has actually come out since to say we didn't know what we were doing on that movie. We, we were, they, I didn't fully research this. I didn't deep dive into it. Uh, just enough to know that the uh, even the effects company apologized for the effects. But the idea I got was that they were maybe a physical effects studio that was making the transition and this was their first big because that was kind of an oh shit moment for special effects artists uh right there in the mid 90s where things started to switch i mean to the point that not even just the obvious sort of uh dinosaurs and uh larger explosions but squibs and gunfire itself uh still to this day is oftentimes cgi'd and i can still certain elements still piss me off like, use a squib. I, I don't care if you have to use CGI to create a giant <laughs> snake or something, but if yeah, you're gonna... No, I agree. It's fake blood is just... Use fake blood. There was nothing wrong with the process at that point. Yeah,
2: practi- yes. practical and CGI should, like, live hand in hand. It shouldn't be, like... Yeah. I mean, all practical effects movies aren't bad if you do them right, but, like, an all-CGI movie could go very bad, like, if it's not done right especially
1: uh, at that period when it was still in like a technology industry. yeah it was still formative
2: like yeah. you know jurassic park was 93 i forget what year Escape from la came out
1: 96
2: um, yeah so you're like three years after jurassic park which was like the game changer for all that and yeah. so yeah you got a lot of like you know effects houses now like trying to get their start and like just basically throwing anything out there that they think will work and this and so, was
0: this was going to be ambitious for anybody that took it on uh i th- i think that this was probably more a victim of timing than anything else this is the only movie that kurt russell has a writing credit yeah on. isn't
2: it like carpenter deborah hill and kurt <laughs> russell have the screenwriting credits so yeah, yeah you could...
0: only wanted it if it was carpenter and and hill uh, together again and kurt apparently had a lot of ideas apparently the whole ending was his which i would argue the whole ending was carpenters in the first movie and russell rewrote it for this.
2: Yeah, like <laughs> I, I could just totally see like the three of them just like you know by smoking a joint and drinking like exactly. what we yes. <laughs> let's and, throw and, that in there
0: and to me that's the enjoyment of the movie i I will throw this movie a bone. I did see it under the best possible circumstances because in 96, I was 17. I was still in high school and my folks took us on a day trip to Hollywood and uh, allowed me to invite my best friend, Greg, who listens to the show. Hi, Greg. And- what up, Greg? <laughs> What's up, Greg? What's up, Greg? You guys have met Greg. Uh, Greg, Sergeant. Uh, but anyways, uh, my folks took us out to go see uh, Escape from L.A. at uh on opening day at the Chinese theater. So, and it was, I think it might've actually been the first movie I ever saw at the Chinese. I think that was the first thing on Hollywood Boulevard, the big Chinese and the Chinese is even featured in escape from LA. So by the time I was 17, I was no longer a kid. I wasn't just loving everything that I saw on a big screen. And and there was enough in this movie to know that something was wrong. Uh, But the high (laughs) of that experience, I'm willing to give this movie a pass as being fun. Uh, John Carpenter himself compared it to, uh, he's a huge Howard Hawks fan. And so he compared these films to Rio Bravo and El Dorado saying essentially, yeah, they're the same movie, but you know, they're fun. Uh, I, I think Carpenter is being a little too, I, I think he had too good of a time making it maybe to be yeah, able to see it separately,
1: but the, the ultimately- pro- uh, The problem is- so. I just see it as a problem. I mean, there's some definitely some execution problems, but the problem I feel is the tone. Because even though the first one had some satirical elements, it had some social commentary and it had some wit to it. It wasn't as nearly as like trying to be so over the top with the satirical elements and to the point yeah. that it's like you know it it becomes like a fucking clown show but um it was and there's
0: no excuse for hershey the uh pam greer uh yes trans character which is absolutely ridiculous and they lowered an octave and a half or steve buscemi trying to take on the Ernest borgnine role from the original except for the borgnine was a good guy usually trying to help out snake whereas buscemi was he, a weaselly
1: little shit that you really plan plan man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. man, that's right <laughs> what a waste of Steve Buscemi. I think that I walked out of the theater and I think my first thought was, what a waste of Steve Buscemi. It's true. Um,
0: and he said too, that he made that movie so that he could finance Trees Lounge, his directorial
1: debut. So, Which is a much uh, better use of your money.
0: Yes. One taken for the indie team there. Uh, at this point, we've probably given a little too much, To escape from LA,
2: from uh, LA than we had escape from New York. We did, we
0: did. You know, just to make that balance better, you're right, Casey. I'm gonna throw out a fun fact on Escape from New York. Brain was originally supposed to be Warren Oates, but Warren Oates got ill and passed away before they could do it. But uh, Oates was the one who recommended Harry Dean Stanton. I thought that was kind of a cool little fun fact about that movie
2: good call war notes
0: there you go no bad call on dying war notes that's exactly <laughs> how dare you right how dare you have a massive heart attack in your 50s after you <laughs> taught sam peckinpah how to do coke to kick your drinking habit
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh that did that come off as mean i'm sorry
1: <laughs> no just funny <laughs> I don't make the distinction sometimes. I think the comedy's in the situation
2: on that one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, while we're here in uh, Kurt Russell land, maybe we should go ahead and take that extra step into uh, Big Trouble in Little China while we're here. I, I think this is th- those three films. Well, let me take it back. Let's let's take Escape from LA out of there. Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China actually do make an interesting double feature. Absolutely. Uh, what what was your guys's first experience with uh, Big Trouble in Little
1: China? Uh, once again, it was a movie my mother loved. Uh, you'll hear that come up on this podcast a lot. My mom, for a mom, my mom had very interesting taste in cinema and really influential for me. But uh, I loved it, of course. I mean, it's. It, I go back and forth with putting it in my top three favorite movies of all time. It's definitely in the top three most watch movie of all time. I mean, it works on so many goddamn. It works on every level. It does. It, it's both an like an amazing comedy. It's both a very sincere you know, love leather to, uh, the, especially the, um, the pretty much genre the,
2: film in general.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it works in every level. The effects are great. The mythology, internal mythology is great. All the performances are great. You know, not just, uh, uh Jack Burton. I will say though, this is, it's, I've always, it's funny because Jack Burton thinks he's Snake Plissken, but he's everything that Snake Plissken isn't. Uh, and I think it was one of the things that, as far as like the, just the genius of writing that script of making the the typical like sort of bravado white American hero, the bumbling fool, like the dude that's not that capable, really. And then surrounding him with like, you know, people that are, are more capable than he is. Um, and it's I mean, yeah, I will go on record as saying it's definitely, I think, Kurt Russell's best performance It's just a completely uh, realized character down to like the everything piece of the costuming um too it's yeah i love it to death it's one of the movies i will watch in probably the last week of my life <laughs> yeah i Which mean hopefully isn't soon
2: basically kind of what you said as well is like it, it the movie encapsulates everything that you want to go to a movie and see like yeah, yeah. even if you're not like a film geek it's just like you want to be you just want to go and be entertained and like it just throws the kitchen sink at you when it comes to that because it's like you've got martial arts, you've got horror elements, you've got you know Chinese mysticism, uh, Chinese action, magic, <laughs> yeah, like you know <laughs> great action set pieces. Uh, Kurt Russell, you know, performance is just fantastic, and it's just most movies that would try to be so bold to like throw all this stuff at you into a, a movie. Like it probably would fail for the yeah. most part, but I don't think that's the case with Big Trouble and Little China. I think it, part of what's great about it is that they did all that and it works and yeah. it's severely rewatchable. It's always fun. Like, it's not a movie that, like, you see multiple times and go, oh, this isn't as good as I remember. It's like, no, it's no. still it's still fun as hell. Like,
0: yeah, it, it's really held up, and I think you're nailing it there. It's the combination of so many things that Carpenter was able to put together in the right order. And yeah. some of the things that he kind of had to finagle to get... Uh, for one thing, he wanted Jackie Chan to play the lead, uh, which would have been amazing at the time but he in america jackie chan if he was even known at all was known
1: for cannibal run right so (laughs) well i mean i think by that point he had done uh battle creek brawl which wasn't like a super huge hit stop and think
0: about the title you just said in the united states (laughs) in 1980 hey man (laughs) six were they talking about (laughs)
2: <laughs> wasn't jackie Chan's first like american-made film the protector yes yeah so that was like 85 and so that was like a year before this so he probably wasn't known because that movie wasn't a hit by any means.
1: no but i think i the thing is i think what carpenter i think first off if you watch the protector and even battle, battle creek brawl is like first off jackie spoke english in. he didn't speak english in uh the protector i think i think he was dubbed in that he had somebody else do his American voice, but he speaks English in Valkyrie Brawl. And he sounds, he sounds exactly the way he does sound today. But I think Jackie, or I think John Carpenter, besides being really impressed, like John Carpenter's always been into like uh varied media. And he, I know he was a fan of Kung Fu films, obviously otherwise he wouldn't have made this movie, but I think he saw the star potential and eventually what would go on to become true of Jackie Chan, especially when he was vital and young and doing, you Know some of his most amazing films in that period in the, in the mid 80s to early 90s, but um, yeah, it's unfortunate. But I mean, I think obviously the film we got, you know, is uh, yeah. And one thing I yeah. feel like it has to be said, one thing I love when filmmakers do, and most don't, but John Carpenter has like all this like rich mythology with like these original like concepts, with, like the three storms and these things. But they don't, he doesn't bend over backward trying to explain it, they don't explain it. the very little asides to explain the crazy shit that happens in this movie there's a there's the you know ogre the troll what's up go go ahead i i have a way to wrap that up though to explain that but yeah i mean it's just i i i like a movie that just creates these weird mythological like their own internal mythologies their own, own internal concepts uh especially ones that get like weird and kind of uh you know uh uh really, like, out of this world and, 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 you know, far out. And 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 don't, kid, like, hiss over the head with exposition trying to explain it. Our minds will fill that shit in. In fact, it's cooler. Like, the three storms are cooler because they didn't say, try to explain what they were, even though, like I said, if you know specifically Chinese mythology and stuff, there's an origin there. But, like, it's just they're just cool characters that they don't need to, like, be, like, you know – Spend 15 minutes trying to explain them, and I I, I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's better.
2: just well, It's like you know what? Just go on the ride.
0: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. For real. It, so,
2: it's like I'm sure you're probably questioning like what's going on here, but that's actually part of the fun. You're just like this is some weird shit, but it's really- and it's also
1: really smart because after the movie's done, you're still going to be thinking about it. Exactly. And that's why the three storms as a kid were so cool because you're like there is they're mysterious, just like Boba Fett was. You know, he kind of very mysterious, and then you know, we'll, we won't touch on <laughs> on that, but, but um. But yeah, I, I, I think it was really cool and uh, I'm sure Devin's about to hit us with some behind-the-scenes filmmaking facts.
0: Oh, well, I, I do have a couple of fun facts, but I was going to say, I think part of why it works so well on that level of not having to explain everything is because oftentimes when you have screenplays where the audience is taken into a, a world that they are not as familiar with, which would certainly describe uh, Americans American cinema goers in 1987 towards Chinese culture, uh, there's usually a character that, represents the audience going in who's going to be the one who has all the inquisitive moments and all the uh exposition sort of moments. And for this we get Jack Burton and because Jack Burton is just what the fuck the whole time. Exactly. We're okay with <laughs> kind of having this. <laughs> what and the a man? Wanna...
2: <laughs> Yeah, he's like the sp- Exactly. He's like the spokesman and... for the audience like right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're <laughs> it, like, what it, the but, hell am I witnessing right now? But
1: what I love about it too is that that all the other characters, all the characters who live in Chinatown like, just sort of, like, off the cubby, like, well, of course, it's a, he's a 10-foot, you know, Chinese black magic of course, Like, they're so, they're so sort of uh, annoyed by his ignorance that they just, they don't even really take his inquiries, like, like well, of course, it's, you know, it is what it is, and uh, it sort of does sort of parallel Americans' bravado and ignorance, especially, like I said, he's definitely channeling a lot of, like, traditional American hero tropes. There's definitely a lot of John Wayne in there, yes, but again, that's intentional. like, Carpenter's kind of, exactly, and Carpenter's sort of playing off our stupid white Dumb, char- like charge in with complete ignorance, like, and exactly. I think it makes the movie work that much better. Yeah, I love, yeah, you I know, love
2: that. Like all the characters except for him are kind of like, oh yeah, those are the three storms. Oh, you want some more tea? Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool.
0: Well, that's that's why he got Russell in the first place. You know, uh, it, they got Kurt Russell because uh, basically John Carpenter wanted to have a cast of of Asian actors, and the only way he was going to get a studio budget for that was if he had Kurt Russell. So he had to. Basically, Bill Kurt Russell is the star, but then tell Kurt Russell, uh, and this is actually something that happened, tell him on the set, oh, and by the way, you're the sidekick, and (laughs) Kurt Russell ran with it. And just a little fun fact, the suit that he wears when he goes into the uh, brothel that's being used in front for Lopan's business is actually a suit that he wore in the movie Used Cars, Robert Zemeckis' Cars, which oh, is another one of my favorite Kurt Russell movies.
2: Yeah, that movie's fantastic.
1: I also just, I feel like what needs to be said real quick too, it, it, it's like, it's very much an ensemble film and i like fucking James Hong, the legend James Hong kills it as Lopan. Dennis Dunn is great in this and really I again here's this young Asian American actor character and he's just a, he's like a cool young dude that like it, there's no they don't play into any stereotypes there's no it, they're just normal people who just happen to you know be Chinese people living in, in this kind of fantastical setting in in this fictionalized version of uh, San Francisco Chinatown and I love Victor Wong as Egg like Shen amazing he has some of the best lines in the movie um Kim Cattrall is great in this yeah. um dude overall like every like i love this like the whole cast is amazing in this, and i think john carpenter was super smart with his casting on this i think it really adds to why the film is held up is because we're not looking back on this film sort of embarrassed like through like you know white guild isn't making us sort of like oh man this is kind of hard to watch no he was you know there's no all of the the chinese characters in this are very three-dimensional characters i can't say enough about this movie obviously
0: great movie
2: Immediately after Big Trouble is when he kind of started his, you know, late 80s, early 90s, like, Universal run.
0: As you get into the kind of Universal stage of John Carpenter, well, he he did some other stuff with Universal, too, that will, I, I have a feeling we're kind of building up to one of my favorite movies he did with Universal. But uh, actually, he did a couple with a smaller company called Alive uh, that were... Distributed by Universal Studios, and on these two films from *Alive*, he actually had full control. So Carpenter is a—he's really a filmmaker who thrives when he has full control. He—you can tell when the studio's stepping on his throat on something, and we'll have plenty of those to talk about in a minute. I'm sure.
2: I'd say that these are definitely like a couple of my favorite movies. Is like hands down
0: yeah they're they're top notch uh and the first one of course uh i'm talking about they live which has turned into a much more of an influential and even timely film than i ever understood it to be when i first saw it in the 80s
2: yeah i love that it's actually getting its kind of kudos now and getting heavily marketed with toys and collectibles and stuff it's like something i've always that
1: they like, God, right I
2: want a John Nada figure, like, so bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, like Now it's finally coming to fruition, like, all these years later. it's uh, Oh, it's fantastic.
0: Now, I, I know I'm going to get an earful of what Jim thinks about this, because this is Roddy Roddy Piper. Uh, That's right. I'm, I'm trying to remain, yeah. Superstar,
1: <laughs> uh, who actually quit the WWF in order to make this movie. Did you know that? Yep. He went, well. There's more to that story, but yes, pretty much he wanted to, this came up and he already wanted to transition into acting because he was sort of bored and there's some political stuff with the WWE that we will not going through, but, but yes, I did. Yes.
0: <laughs> my, my understanding was that Vince McMahon was a controlling dick. and Yes. Uh, for some reason, didn't want him to do Surprise. this film in particular. I, I'm sure because it was a statement against kind of uh, – him and his buddies (laughs) everything he believed in (laughs) uh reaganism was what it was what carpenter calls it a a rebellion against i actually wonder too back in in the good old days let's say back when it wasn't uncommon to find a conservative hanging out with a liberal and they weren't at each other's throats they just kind of gently and uh even strongly uh but politely disagreed about certain things the whole Kurt Russell, John Carpenter thing in general, such a wonderful friendship, such a wonderful working relationship. Yep. But John Carpenter, if you go by the themes of his movies, was most, is most certainly a liberal. And Kurt Russell, yeah, probably wisely, I haven't heard much about his politics lately. I have a feeling he's probably more along the line of, of speaking the way Arnold Schwarzenegger does on the matter.
1: Uh, but Well, he's a libertarian anyways, right? He's... Yes. Yeah.
0: Uh, and, you know, we're, we're splitting airs on things that uh, really the show is not about. But uh, I just did want to point right. <laughs> out, I, I find it interesting that either he was, either Carpenter was kind of feeling some Russell fatigue or vice versa. Uh, or I think that Russell may have sat this movie out because of the Reagan message of it. Uh, that the government is trying to destroy the middle class and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Basically, what the Obey movement came out of. And, yeah, yeah. And which Carpenter Literally, himself, yeah. uh, Carpenter has had to make public statements about his intentions with the film. Uh, in fact, I think I might have something here. Uh, he said it was a vehicle to take on Reaganism. And then over the years, neo Nazis and white supremacist groups have co opted it for their own purpose. And his response was They Live is about yuppies and unrestrained capitalism. It has nothing to do with Jewish control of the world, which is slander and a lie. And I'm glad that he stuck his neck out there for his artwork and for his beliefs and, and had that to say, because we all want to be on the side of the humans versus the aliens. I, I get that. Uh, but, but don't bury the message that was intended, which I think even as a kid was, it was like the audience was wearing the
1: sunglasses. It was very obvious once you put on the sunglasses. Yes. Yes. Wait, wait. Are you trying to tell me that white supremacists misunderstood the message of something? Get out of (laughs) here.
2: You're talking gibberish.
1: (laughs) That doesn't happen. (laughs)
0: Uh, But of course, when you talk about They Live, we're not necessarily just here to talk about the the messaging behind it. We're here to talk about the five minute long fight sequence. Anyone want to check that
1: (laughs) So, first of all, I've I've talked about this movie on more podcasts than I, I. I never knew it was was possible, but this movie is everything that I think Carpenter excels at, um, which is taking a relatively stupid premise uh, and really finding the humanity in it and really finding where the, you know, the best way to get an audience really invested. Everything about this movie shouldn't work but does uh casting a professional wrestler who had never really acted before as your lead uh, everything about it works for me And, and i think not just for me obviously as you said it's become one of those films that's become more popular over time and again it's very there's something very prescient about it obviously it's very timely more so now than almost ever um sadly which that's harp should be heartbreaking, but you know everything about it is really interesting. The, first off, the the design of the aliens incredible, and John Carpenter was really key on that about what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Design of the aliens amazing. The cast amazing. Keith David as his sort of you know his buddy slash like the you know John Nodd is this you know, like he's not even like a real person. He's almost like the spirit of individuality. He's like, I mean, his name is John Nada for God's sake. So he's almost like, he's, really almost it's like the everyman what the american dream is where you know keith david plays a much more reasonable character he's just a a normal guy just trying to live his life and here comes this dude who sort of literally drags him into literally physically drags him into having this new point of view and keith david in that role is perfect meg foster and her fucking creepy and insane eyes eyes (laughs) is amazing in this dude and it's great every you know it's got an ending which I think was pretty ballsy um, kind of ending, you know, seeing those kind of movies that still manages to find the really great humor in it. And that's the thing is this movie is genuinely really funny when it wants to be and really like, like heart aching and, and heartbreaking when it wants to be, but it's legendary for a reason, you know, obviously like, you know, the, the, it spawned all these different things. Things, one of which is obviously the obey insp- inspiration. The other is like, you know, some of the dialogue has become notorious. Roddy Piper, which wasn't the first time he ever said, I came here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all bubble bubblegum. He'd said that before. You know, Carpenter wanted him to sort of like find his voice in a few things, and that's like when Roddy starts becoming himself more, is when he really starts becoming more interesting character. But you know, it the movie sort of fumble. I'm sorry I'm going off on a tangent here, but obviously I, I you can see how important this movie is to me. But Roddy, you know, there's some things. It sometimes the fumbles a little bit, but it's in those times when it fumbles a little bit that it you your heart you are kind of really find your heart in the movie and you sort of sort of appreciate what's happening. And again, you know, one of my things is watching the documentary on this. Shaw Factory put a really great documentary when they released it few years ago about how much everybody all the night. Cause at this point, uh, the documentary Roddy Piper uh, had unfortunately passed, but how like really like Meg Foster was really like generous to him saying like, you know, she was like, he had no real acting skills, but he tried really hard and she thought like he did really well. And you know, Keith David said all these really nice things, but you could tell that like the movies, the, again, the movie shouldn't work. It's a stupid idea <laughs> it, on, on surface. When you get into it, it's a brilliant idea. And that's why the social commentary is brilliant. But the the if you were to describe it in its basics, it's a stupid, almost like a 1950s sci-fi, which I feel like almost had to have been like a, a small influence in it. Oh, there, pod people were definitely an influence. Yeah, on this. But it's a great movie. I'm, I'm going to stop talking because I, I don't want to. but it's, yeah, it, I love it. I love every single second of that
2: movie. Yeah. I, I love it as well. The only like complaint I could say about it, and it's not necessarily from, it's not how I feel about it, but I could see other people feeling about it is like, it's kind of a little slow to get going. Um, It's definitely like a lot of setup of like the world and how the capitalism is affecting everybody. So it's not that it's not important. It's very important. But like, you know, before you get to like the real action and you know, like truly know what's happening, it kind of takes its time to get there. Oh God, man! Once it does, it's just just brilliant. And and no matter how, I mean, when you think of like badass characters and John Carpenter, I mean, most people tend to go to Kurt Russell first. But I think this is easily probably the most quotable, yeah, <laughs> like Carpenter film there is, basically because of Roddy Piper and like, <laughs> what he brought to it. But, like, you know, besides the bubble gum line, like, just, you know, shit, like, you know, life's a bitch and she's back in heat, you know? (laughs) You're just like, what the fuck? Like, who says that? But you're like, I don't care. It's amazing. (laughs) And, and yeah, that fight, that fight is, I think, to this day, it's still my favorite, like, fight ever in a movie.
0: I think it holds Um, the record for the longest. And not necessarily because it's
2: at length. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the length of it is impressive, but it's just, like it's just so unrelenting. It's like you're in a alley and these dudes are just getting slammed into like cars and fucking pavement. And you're just like, God, this fuck you, you feel every hit in that goddamn fight. And, and yet they never break. the sunglasses so right?
3: <laughs> Yeah.
0: And, um,
1: well, the other thing, though, too, in that scene is there's so much story being told in that fight. And, like, yeah. the mo- there's so many great that's, moments in the fight when, like... That's why we forgive the fight that length.
0: That, that length is actually, to be completely honest, that length is ridiculous and completely <laughs> completely <laughs> oh, yeah. uncalled for, which is why I love it. And in anybody else's hands, it might have been a disaster. But And it wasn't just Carpenter. It was... Uh, Piper had a lot to do with that, and yep. and he took uh, Keith David with him to uh, they they rehearsed this thing for days. So this was really a, a technological feat that they were able to pull this off for that. But you of can time. S-
1: you can you can see in the in that scene like like they're they're fighting, but like you can see that they're they're they're. F- be, they're starting to develop a bond in that scene like when he breaks the window and you know roddy starts laughing like oh shit i'm sorry and then they continue the fight that, that you wouldn't see that in a different movie which in fact that sequence i feel like really he, i can see like the influence where he has of like jackie chan and sam Hung. i i yeah. can feel where like that's an element that you would see in you know the the humanists breaking down that thing but uh, one of Very the things I, I feel like i need to be said is Thank you. I try sometimes, Um, but Keith David went on record as saying like, you know, they obviously it took a lot to film that and they would film things over and over again. But like, first off, I don't know if you like Roddy Piper got in the best shape of his life for this movie. Um, I think at this point, I think he was starting to do what like Hogan and Randy Savage were doing. Not going to make any assumptions, but he definitely got more jacked, but you know, Roddy, Roddy Piper, you know, who's never known as being some brilliant in-ring performer. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't like a college athlete or whatever, but still, obviously, it's a demanding job, but Keith David said, like, he couldn't believe it, like, shot after shot of, like, they would set him up for the suplex, and Roddy, and John would be like, are you okay, Roddy? He's like, yeah, sure, and he'd pick Keith David up and hold him, while well, they set the scene, and he didn't have to sit there holding Keith David up until he was like, "Go!" and then he would drop him, and they get right back up and do it. And he's like, I, "He's like, I was exhausted." And Roddy was just like, "Yeah, let's do this." So I was like, "Now, where the
0: fuck was?" The mad respect s- for my boy Roddy Piper. Where was the set photographer? All that was going on. I don't want pictures of him. Just I know, for real, holding like what? What was the look on his face? Was he looking there? Hanging was up? He, <laughs> was he in character, looking tough, or was he just like taking a smoke break with uh, this gigantic exactly. man up over his his head? <laughs> I know, it's crazy. <laughs> uh, another cool thing about that movie uh, on the technical side, uh, John Carpenter actually put a lot of actual homeless people to work for this movie, which I think is kind of neat. The main characters, both of these characters that are fighting, they're coming from a homeless camp. And they're, a good portion of the beginning of the movie takes place uh, amongst the homeless. And I thought it was uh, really a class act that carpenter took on homeless people that lived in that area to make sure that they got a decent meal and a paycheck uh while their film crew invaded their space and made this amazing movie and uh, another fun fact about the release of it the release was actually delayed uh it was set for an october 21st 1988 release date it moved back to november 4th uh anybody care to guess why
1: uh the olympics no i have no idea <laughs>
0: it did not want to compete with halloween Four: the return of Michael uh, Myers, <laughs> which that makes a lot record, of sense that was the one where john carpenter finally dusted his hands off of the franchise and said you guys take this shit you're you're on your own now uh so it's kind of funny that the first time out of the gate without carpenter carpenter was swinging right there against him uh not against him <laughs> but you know what i mean but still
2: They Live also has one of my favorite scores too by him. Yes, yes, yes. Just so iconic that just you know simplistic, like it. I'm all. It always it always puts a smile on my face anytime I hear it. Mm -hmm.
0: I've I've used that as background when I write other stuff. When I'm writing kind of actiony horror, I I do go to Carpenter soundtracks a lot, and They Live is definitely on the playlist there. Uh, But speaking of homeless people, the homeless people in the next movie were not as. Uh, intellectual and kind as they were in they live. I I can see James wringing his hands ready for this. Uh, James, you obviously know what film this is. Do you want to bring it up? Um, I'm assuming you're
1: talking about Prince of darkness.
0: Yeah, let's it's time. Let's get into this. Okay.
1: Yeah. So uh, again, it's hard to say, because again, this guy made the thing. They live. I won't say Prince of darkness is my favorite of his movies, but I will say it's my favorite of his specifically his horror movies. Now, I know some people who strongly disagree with that, and that's fine. I think this movie is, for some reason, works with what I want out of out of horror. Um, but yeah, it's it's it, for the longest time it wasn't one of his, you know, more. I don't even think it was. I could even say it was almost like a forgotten Carpenter movie. It wasn't one that people talked about. Uh, I think the no. only thing people really talked about it was that it was Alice Cooper was in the movie. I think it was the main for about five. Know, seconds. Hey, Alice Cooper's. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you get a song for it too. Yeah, but I my thing with this movie is. First of it has half the cast of uh of uh, uh trouble. Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought it was really cool he brought them back. And it was
0: yeah. uh, outside of James Wong who I welcome as a presence in any film. Uh the yep. two actors that did come back from uh for Prince of Darkness who I do not see in other stuff very often. It was it was great to see those particular two actors come back.
1: Yep. Yes, I couldn't agree more. But yeah, it's the, the concept of the thing I like about it for the people that haven't seen it, it's, you know, it's basically like um, first of all, it's got Donald Pleasance in his least Donald Pleasance-y type role, nah, I where think he's, he's not like I'm Donald the, Pleasance. It. I the whole time.
0: Why didn't they tell us? Didn't they know? Why, that's true. That's why true. didn't they tell no, us no, the truth? Point. But <laughs> there's mean, less of where in Halloween. True. He's saying the that's evil true. is gone. The evil is gone from here. It's, <laughs> that, that's but the, that's the rest later of his, career, Donald Pleasance level.
1: That's 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 a good Donald point. I guess. Yeah.
0: <laughs> sorry, sorry.
1: But yeah, so the the whole concept of like you know like there's this there's I think what really affected me the first time I saw it was just using like things like theoretical physics to sort of explain or investigate, you know, the essence of evil or what is you know, Satan or, you know, even in this movie, it sort of invents its own mythology a little bit, which is a portion which I think is a little bit the most murky thing in it, but I still like it. And I think, first off, it's my favorite John Carpenter score. I think it's his creepiest score. I love it. There's so many scenes in this movie where even if I can just start thinking about the scene, I will start getting a little creeped out. And I think it's incredible. There's just, there's all of the practical effects in this are fucking really well done. Um, it just has this, it to me, it seems like it's almost inspired by Italian horror, like as if, you yes, know, he's.
0: I was going to mention that too.
1: Yeah, it definitely has that vibe, like that that Bava vibe and the, the Fulci vibe. And there's definitely some visual cues. I think in fact, I, I always liked this. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, the church.
0: Yes. Uh, and, and right, Not, not plot wise necessarily, but their visual elements are money.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I love watching them as a double feature cause they both unnerve me. But, um, uh, but yeah, and, you know, it's, it's, it's got a bunch of, I mean, the, um, the main actor is from like Simon and Simon. He, he wasn't like, he was, didn't go on to have really do much, but I think he was perfect in this role because he has, definitely has a much more everyman kind of aspect. Um, but it's definitely, there's no one person leading this role. Um, he,
0: did, he did have a very, very fantastic mustache, though. He did, a
1: great mustache. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, just it's very creepy. There's some really haunting moments from this movie. Um, I like that the character. I mean, there's a lot of things where you're like, sort of like when you start to think about it, where you're like, "What? They're just gonna take in these like unpaid interns?" I don't. There's some like weird. You know, we're we're gonna we're gonna tap into the uh,
0: the source of all the evil in the universe. Ah, Send a couple college kids in. Exactly, some unpaid (laughs) college kids.
1: Get Uh, the interns. (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, dude, like, there's so much of the, like, the, that, like, that, that sort of tube cage thing that the, that essence of the devil is in. Like, there's just so many cool looking things, but. It's, you know what look- i love to, uh, just to, before we pass away from the tube,
0: because it'll probably won't come up again. I always appreciated the tube looks like a new thing. And that's what's. it's a tube with this swirling green. You can't tell if it's fluid or smoke or what, but something green that's just swirling at a faster and faster rate as the movie goes on and it's ominous enough, but you think like, this is something like you don't expect to see this in the middle of a church. Like what's going on with this? And it kind of looks like a special effect. So I'm not quite, it didn't seem menacing enough until they start analyzing it and they realize that it's like 7 million years old. And then suddenly, like, right. oh shit, this thing that looks like it came from the future is actually a-
1: really before man. And, you know? <laughs> and one of the things I was actually saying about it is I like the fact that there's no context for that. Like we've never seen that before, especially when you dealing with the devil. And then even more, to exactly your point, how much it starts to get creepier the more they show it, especially when they get up close and you start to see the real age of what like you know, the fact that like this thing is corrosive and like, there's just, again, there's so many things about this movie I love, but mainly my thing is for me, it's one of just a horror movies in general, which, you know, I think says a lot is that, I think it continues to be legitimately creepy and unnerving every time I've seen it. And I've seen it a lot. And that's hard with horror. A lot of times you get those, you start to be sort of deadened to the scares, even really, you know, intense movies, the more you see them. But there's just an, the movie builds an atmosphere. I think that's the best word. There's an atmosphere in this movie that Carpenter made that I think is amazing. So And it
0: builds on this dread. There's a sequence in the movie. You know, For those who don't know, there's the plot of Prince of Darkness is this thing that's, in this church and it's been stored there for a really long time and people don't know what it is and they're they're analyzing it they realize that it's it's not just satan it's like the father of satan that is held within this thing and so like it's an it's not the anti-christ it's the anti-god it is the creator of the creator of our suffering and so which is a pretty heavy subject to begin with and the fact that they tie it all into science just is kind of fascinating and actually very british and that's why it's kind of cool that uh john carpenter he wrote the screenplay himself but he credits himself as martin quartermas which is a nod (laughs) quartermas experiment yes which was a a british uh, a hammer film sci-fi film uh dealing with uh deities and and science at the same time but one of the scenes that gets me every time and it's a perfect blend of like old dread and new technology for you know whenever this was 1987 uh and that's people in the future the future of 1999 which is obviously 1999 yes are sending this message back to the people who were researching this tube of evil and they're they can only transmit it in the form of dreams but all they have to transmit with is video cassette uh, so the, it, there's this weird sort of like they're, they're limited by their own technology, but at the same time they have the technology to transmit into the dreams of people in the past. And the carpenter achieved the the dream sequences by actually filming the sequence on VHS and then putting a film camera in front of a television set yep. show, showing what he had done on VHS so that it was, it wasn't just that it looked like it was somebody's home movie. It was something otherworldly. And as you're creeping around, this building that the movie takes place in, in this VHS, you're getting to this door that's like glowing and you start to see this presence coming out of it. And you're mm-hmm. starting to realize like this, this is evil. This is Satan's papa coming out this door into Los Angeles somewhere. And you I, I, this isn't a spoiler. Uh, they, but you never really see it fully come out because it's a dream sequence. But the fact that you don't, the fact that you just kind of see this thing that looks so normal, like anybody else's VHS home movies, and then this creature coming out of a light through this doorway, there's something really unsettling about the way he did that. And I got to hand it to uh, Carpenter. Dude, it's still one of my most eerie and frightening images I can think of in any film from that period, which in my opinion is the best film for horror movies,
1: uh, best period for horror movies. Great. And I, I'm so glad you mentioned it because I was... I. I'm kicking myself in the ass for not bringing up that point specifically. There's something about, first of all, the way you, they filmed it, but even like the music and the sound design mm-hmm. of that when they show it, but when that silhouette kind of appears in the door as the kind of camera is moving, first of all, it feels like you're actually. It's humanoid, a weird-
0: but inhuman. Like, we don't to-
1: exactly. And it's, it's truly it's creepy. And a head, but like where they connect, yeah. I don't know. It's- yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's. I, it's Yes, it's one of my favorite aspects of that film.
0: And for years, when people would mention that movie, that is the shot. Like, that is the actual image that would pop into my head. I was actually lucky enough to see this in the theater uh, several years back. But I was The time when I lived in New York, I, I don't know what was in the water, but John Carpenter was going through a huge revival at the time. And just during the, the three years that I was out there, I managed to see nearly every single John Carpenter movie played in the theater out there, and most of them at Lincoln Center, which is a nice, huge uh, like museum quality screen. And They Live was one of them and it was double featured with uh, Prince of Darkness. And getting to see, almost uh, in a juxtaposition kind of way, getting to see that VHS shot of the film shooting the VHS but projected on a screen now, uh, but seeing it that large was really, really creepy. And I remember the friend that I took with me had never seen it before and he's probably still talking about it.
3: <laughs>
2: um, I, I like Prince of Darkness uh, for a lot of the reasons you guys have brought up. I do think it's his creepiest movie. I think it's his weirdest movie and in the best possible way for stuff that's already been brought up. There's just so many weird visuals and like just creepy shit going on in that movie. And the fact that, you know, because it's trying to tie in like science to something that's kind of like supernatural and stuff, I find interesting. And the fact that you possibly couldn't know as an average movie goer, like, all the stuff that they're bringing up, you just kind of have to trust them with it. Yeah. yeah. And just kind of have like a semblance of it in order to like enjoy the film. I thought it was really uh, interesting. And I, that, you know, like you said, the, the green spinning uh, tube is always etched in my mind when I think of that movie. It, yeah, it's definitely something that definitely was, it's definitely a movie of his that, you know, was kind of looked over, but I'm glad is kind of now getting the attention it deserves. Cause even I was kind of like late to the game on that one. Like I, I, I didn't see that first run and, um and yeah, it's, it's definitely one of my favorites by him. And like you said, it's probably, it probably is like, as far as true horror goes, it's probably the best one out of his filmography for that, for, for the reasons that we've discussed. And um, yeah, it's any, uh, any, any carpenter fan that hasn't seen prince of darkness you should get on that like immediately it's so underrated
1: yeah anytime i i talk to somebody who loves horror and hasn't seen it i'm like oh shit dude it's like it's like oh to me i i know this might be hyperbolic but to me it's like if you've never seen the shining for me i'm like you need to see this movie because it's you know it's one is really unexpected especially if you know carpenters work and two like i said there's just so many levels to it of why it affects me that i'm always like oh dude it's a highest recommendation for people who are fans of horror, but have never.
0: the uh, movie you just mentioned that actually provides a perfect lead into, to another one. Uh, Cause you know, around the early eighties, uh, there was a saying going around amongst every horror director. And that was, I gotta get me a Stephen book. And uh, for Carpenter, it, well we'll get into it maybe a little bit later uh what it almost was but what it ended up being was Christine if you want to go over Christine briefly we are starting to run into uh part two territory in, part two territory <laughs> but, but you know what uh we haven't spoken to each other all three of us together in quite some time so i i i think that we can be self indulgent here but Uh, Nonetheless, uh, (laughs) starry Starman, we're probably just going to say, hey, Starman was awesome. But (laughs) uh, that's a movie. (laughs) (laughs) It is. is. Jeff Bridges is fantastic. Uh, He studied uh, birds so that he would have that kind of look to him. Uh, And he's the only actor that was ever nominated for an Oscar for a John Carpenter movie, and that is Starman. But (laughs) to get into Christine... Uh, I think there's actually more to Christine than most people were really giving it credit for at the time. It wasn't one of the really popular Stephen King adaptations. When it, uh, for me, maybe it was just because I was young. Uh, I remember when I was 11 years old, That was the year I I got a a VCR for my bedroom for Christmas. Um, Most kids, I think by the time they were about 11, at least had a TV in their room. This was the 80s, so I think a lot of kids might have had... My first TV was a black and white. So, you know, it was that that ancient. Uh, But I begged my parents for a VCR in my room because there were all these movies I wanted to rent that I knew that my parents were not going to let me watch because I had to watch it in the living room where my brother and sister could see it. And uh, along with... I I got my wish. I must have been a good boy that year. Uh, but I, I got a VCR and I got two movies on VHS and they were both Stephen King adaptations. So appropriate for the age. The first one was stand by me. And the second one was Christine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Does anybody else have any Uh, fun memories of Christine? Yeah, it was a good Christmas. (laughs) Uh, No, not no fun memories at what, I will say, like, as a kid, you know, I, like, every kid at that age, like, I grew up, you know, loving Stephen King, reading Stephen King books on my summer, but it, I think Christine was the one, Christine and Cujo were the two adaptations which I had the least I didn't watch them a lot as kids. I probably saw them a handful of times and probably when they were on TV and not like on VHS. I couldn't Um, handle Cujo as a
0: kid. I still can't. It's too hard. Like I can't, I refuse to look at Cujo as a
1: villain. The whole thing is sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like a tragic, but I mean the, that movie is actually, it's actually actually really really good. (laughs) That movie is a, and, it, and to this day, it's like it's, it affects me. Like watching it, I get like, the, oh, it was filmed brilliantly. But that really we're works. not here to talk about Cujo. No. But I will say like there it is weird that there is a whole like genre, subgenre of horror of like killer automobiles. <laughs> like that, there's been a lot of those movies, if you think about it, down to like trucks and the car. Obviously, like duel and stuff. But um, Even Stephen uh, King's tackled, it's, being, it's tackled a, again in uh, of uh, the, Maximum Overdrive. Yep, yeah, Exactly. Oh man,
2: but I could do a whole episode on Maximum Overdrive.
1: The best movie ever made on cocaine. Oh my
0: um, god. Hey, honey, this machine just called me an asshole.
1: <laughs> oh god, I love it. But yeah, I mean it's it's I mean, it's a good I'll just say this. It's a good movie featuring the least likely main actor of the 80s uh with Keith Gordon. I was so I don't know, over a His of film companies. career is yeah. It's just I still don't. It's weird. His agent must have been a miracle worker. But um,
2: there's a reason he became a director.
1: Yeah, (laughs) but but, um, yeah, it's great. I think the the best thing I'll say about the movie though is the effects the cinematography and the soundtrack overall. I mean, the movie's good. It's actually a good movie and everybody's in it. Kelly Preston's good in it, but um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a good movie. It's, I I don't really have much more to say than that. I like, I said the effects with everything with Christine, everything.
2: I'm kind of on the same wavelength. Like I like it. I enjoy it. I'll watch it. If it's on, it's not one that sticks out to me as like iconic as some of his other works. But I mean, I definitely can see why it would be for someone else. Um, But just my own personal experience with it, like it's you know it's just like oh yeah, Christine's a cool movie, and you know it's well made and it's entertaining. Like you know a lot of his a lot of Carpenter's work.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
2: uh, Yeah, I just don't I don't have like you know super fond memories of watching it a lot or you know anything like that personally. But yeah, it's definitely a damn good movie. It should be watched for sure.
0: For real. For a movie about a monster car, I've got no complaints. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And because the the killer was a car, it's kind of funny that it was actually. It fell right before there were the invention of in PG-13, and it was getting a PG, and it actually, it was kind of the kiss of death for a horror movie. Uh, there are certain horror movies that have had to fight to get their R rating, but from the other direction. And Army of Darkness was one, too, where uh, Army of Darkness really, let's face it, that's a PG-13 movie that they smacked an R on because the gore reaches ridiculous levels, but yeah. it's a PG-13 movie. It just it was going to make even less money than it made uh, eventually by being an R rated movie. And the same yeah. was with Christine. They really wanted an R rated movie. So if you'll notice, they say fuck a lot.
3: in the yes. movie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So that was how they were able to like guarantee that they got an R with a movie about a killer car. Uh, and a uh, final fun fact on Christine before we move on, because to me, this is something that I love. Uh, Nicolas Cage was almost cast as Buddy Reperton, the bully of the school that Arnie goes to. So we almost got to see Nicolas Cage as the bully in Christine, uh, the one that Christine kills at the gas station, uh, yep. by like setting him on fire and then running over <laughs> him or whatever. <laughs> Which, Nicolas Cage is the bully in anything. Uh, <laughs> in, in <laughs> uh, Whenever that was, nineteen eighty three, four, 83. It's yeah, 83. I'm good with the years. You are pretty good with the years. Yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, that's kind up. of
2: telling me that like Nicholas Cage was almost the villain. In that movie is like telling me that Crispin Glover was almost. the. <laughs> 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 the villain in that movie. And I would have seen either version of those. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, I'm not complaining, but, but yeah, that, I, I definitely would have been interested in that version for sure. But the version that exists is, is great. It's, it's a, it's a solid King adaptation. It's a solid Carpenter film.
1: And uh, again, I have to go on record saying that movie looks amazing. Still this day, it looks, it's really a very slickly shot film. Yeah, it's a very
2: well shot film, for sure.
1: Hey guys, so thanks for listening uh, to the podcast. Uh, This actually officially ends uh, part one of our John Carpenter episode. Uh, What assholes,
0: man. We keep on doing this.
1: (laughs) I know. Unintentional. Uh, but there's just so much to talk about. John Carpenter is obviously a legendary filmmaker, and we want to make sure all of his films are given their right due. Uh, and plus having Casey on was a, a shit ton of fun. Yes, uh, Definitely a shit ton. I, is a shit ton different than a regular ton? I don't really know if I understand Not that. a crap ton, a shit ton. A shit ton, because we we feel strongly. Um, what, ways, what, what weighs more, though? A on crap, that note. A
0: crap ton of feathers or a shit ton of feathers? Which one weighs more? That's what I'm saying.
1: I I, I don't know science. How do magnets work? Um, On that note, uh, thanks for listening to part one of our John Carpenter episode. We're going to tie this up right now. Uh, So when you listen to part two, we're sort of just picking up where we left off. But again, Devin and I uh, and Casey really appreciate you listening. Uh, Have a great and happy Halloween and can't wait for you to listen to part two. And make sure you find us on Spotify,
0: Apple Podcasts, and uh google podcasts amazon and we are on youtube now as well so make sure you're looking to every place that you find podcasts in fact go listen to us in all those places go uh just just pick it up on like six different exactly yeah we could really use the numbers right now so uh but we love you. Yeah, put for- on
1: multiple stereos. It'll be like that Flaming Lips album. You can hear us talking. All day. It'll be like a sonic experiment.
0: <laughs> you, it, you will feel Do like... Do some K.O.T. Kay- It'll be nice. You'll feel like Casey's really
1: in the room, man. And <laughs> Man.
0: <laughs>
1: I like the, the 0% of our listeners that got that reference, but it's fine. Right. <laughs> I mean...
2: I got I, it. That's all that matters. I know.
1: I did it for you, Casey. <laughs>
0: all right uh, fuck everyone else (laughs) (laughs) all right guys well thank you for joining us for this that's uh, gonna be the new tagline
1: of our show fuck
2: everyone
0: fuck everybody else first t-shirt there you go there you go i i'm actually all for that oddly enough uh but thanks for joining us and we will see you next time when we get back into part two on john Carpenter. happy halloween everybody